Hi there, and welcome to the Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm your host, Maya Lopin, and I'm here to deliver you your regular fix of greens through insightful interviews with experts and wonderful, passionate people in the field of environmental sustainability. Whether you are an expert yourself or just looking for some friendly background conversation while you go about your day, tune into these episodes to learn more about some current amazing people and initiatives tackling environmental issues. Who knows, maybe you'll hear something you like and be inspired to take on a project of your own. Welcome to Eat Your Greens, the first step towards making a difference. Welcome to the very first episode of Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm thrilled to welcome on the show today Mr. Hang Chong Tan, founding member of Foodscape Collective and an environmental educator. Welcome. Right, thank you, Maya. It's a pleasure and honor to be your first interviewee for this podcast. And I'd like to congratulate you on this initiative. Thank you. So maybe to start us off for this episode, um, you can tell us a little bit about your background, your work, and just to help me and the audience understand exactly what it is that you do. Yeah, sure. Well... I'm born and bred in Singapore all my life, and one of the formative experiences that I've had was uh, joining the Scout Movement uh, when I was in a grade three in uh, primary school here. Uh, I was a Scout for 10 years, and it opened up opportunities for me to go outdoors, experience what uh, camping was like, and uh, being comfortable in outdoors especially in Singapore when it's kind of challenging with our heat and humidity. Yeah. Well, the Scouting Movement actually also has a motto, and although it's not always on my mind, I've always found it um, very relevant, especially in this day and age. Uh, And that is to be prepared. And I hope that uh, in the short lifetime that I have here, that I can be prepared for any and all of the challenges that uh, we face together in the years ahead. Yeah, and I think with recent issues um, of sustainability, of inequalities in the world, you know, there's so many things going on. And the biggest thing that we can do is be prepared for the somewhat, you know, um, unexpected challenges that we may face. Um so yeah, I think that's definitely a great motto and that's definitely something we want to bring forward and not only to be prepared ourselves, but to prepare the future generations. Yeah, that's right. So well, actually when the founder of the Scout Movement, uh, Lord Baden-Powell, um, he, uh, by following this motto, he actually left a farewell message uh, before he passed on. Uh, and in that farewell letter, he actually advised fellow scouts uh, to leave this world a better place than we first found it. And uh, this has been sort of my abiding motivation uh, to try to ensure that I, I do live up to this, uh, or rather uh, meet up to this piece of advice that he, he left us. Okay, and so now you definitely work in sustainability. Um, and kind of carrying forward your learning and your experiences in the outdoors from the scouts. So why sustainability? I mean, I'm sure there's a sense of protectiveness over the environment, but 
what exactly grew you into this passion? And did you feel that you had certain skills that are especially helpful in this field? I can't say that I was very, very skillful uh, in any sense of the word. Um, well, besides being involved in the scout movement, I, I consider myself more of a, a nerd. So I spent my school holidays when my uh, parents actually sent me to my aunt's home. And uh, most of the time, I, I would be buried into a set of uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica um, not sure whether use of this age will know about this anymore, but uh, in essence, <laughs> of course, now we have Wikipedia. <laughs> but in sense, in essence, I I I devoured knowledge and trivia, whether applicable or not, from a very young age, and uh, with this sense of curiosity. Uh, uh, my favorite subject in school was geography, and uh, geography enabled me to learn about both the physical and uh, cultural landscapes, social landscapes of uh, this one and only planet that we have. Uh, it also opened my eyes to the environmental uh, and ecological challenges that we face. And also, I think on reflection, it also, I think, um, enabled me to understand a little bit about systems thinking, you know, how different cycles, planetary cycles, be it water, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, actually interact with each other and the kind of impact that uh, human civilization is having on them. Uh, while I did not actually, I wasn't very exam savvy, so I didn't even finish my books uh, when I took in part in my major exams. I didn't do that well at all. Um, and uh, so... Although I didn't have a career plan or path, uh, never went to university, uh, I was quite privileged in a sense that uh, with many good uh, friends and acquaintances, uh, they have actually invited me, uh, opened doors and opportunities for me, uh, one of which was uh, joining the Nature Society of Singapore and with fellow friends who were interested in uh, bird watching. Uh, understanding our local mammals and fish, uh, coral reefs and mangrove swamps. This enabled me to actually learn about um, the biodiversity in Singapore and eventually add on, led on to opportunities to uh, share this love of nature with people around me and actually get uh, paid for doing so. So I, I guess I was more of a accidental environmental educator than anything else <laughs> so i guess that's that's a great message for our audience is that you don't need to be great in school you don't have to get the best grades all the time would you say that you know passion is is more important and it's more about the experiences that you can get that can bring you forward uh, i think my life experiences certainly tells me so but uh, there is a huge caveat there as i mentioned that i i I'm privileged in the sense that um, I was the eldest uh, son of uh, three uh, children in my in my family. Uh, we, uh, my parents are uh, uh, retired. Uh, I don't have any dependents, uh, and when you do not have any liabilities, it's quite quite easy for you to forge 
uh, or spend time in the things that you are passionate or interested about. So therein lies that privilege for me to explore uh, different options for me. Uh, for those who, who are of a different circumstance, um, then the realities of uh, financial or physical security comes in. And I think this is one of the uh, conundrums that um, a few uh, uh, advocates for environmental and sustainability may have. You know, how can they have a green career, uh, perhaps, uh, bearing in mind their own personal circumstances? Yeah, definitely. That's it's everybody starts at a different point, um, and even with the same goal in mind there might be a different path for everybody. Um, so we've kind of understood that your path is has been to get experience. Um, you've been lucky to connect with different people who have given you opportunities. Um, for our audience who might be of different circumstances, what um, kind of options do you recommend and how can they make an impact, whether on a small scale, on a big scale? What do you think is the best path forward, for example, for a teenager at the moment? I think for a teenager, uh, the opportunities uh, and the horizons are wide. Um, of course, uh, being in a... Depending on what kind of education system you are subjected to, <laughs> whether voluntary or otherwise, um, I think if you, if you interview or if you ask any parent or educator... Um, they will probably tell you, or at least in my experience, uh, most education systems are set up purely to, or primarily to provide skilled labor for the jobs that are available in the market. And so for anyone who wants to forge a different path, or especially in this day and age, we are in the what, what we call the knowledge economy, right? Or... Uh, what do they call it now? The Industrial Revolution, uh, post-Industrial Revolution 3.0, you know, uh, lots of uh, manual work, manual work has been replaced by uh, automation, robotics. Uh, so it's not so much what you know uh, because um, knowledge and skills uh, are advancing at, at such breakneck speed. Uh, you, No one... Uh, in this day and age, can be like a Leonardo da Vinci anymore. <laughs> For example, who, who, I mean, some people here still claim that they are, you know, uh, what's the word do they call it? Not a polygot. Uh, someone who, you know, is an uh, expert uh, in many different fields. Uh, it's not possible uh, in this day and age. But nonetheless, uh, the advancement of the internet, I think, has enabled anyone with access to it to learn on their own. And that, that's truly a, a breakthrough. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, as long as you have this thirst for knowledge and the willingness to continue learning and discover, uh, uh, be curious about the challenges, the needs of the people and the community around you, uh, as long as you can add value to your community and society, I think there'll always be a place uh, for you, uh, no matter where you are or where, which, whichever any starting point that you have. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's definitely a very good point that the internet and what my goal is ultimately with this podcast is that there is so much knowledge out there to be shared and through the internet we can access all of this information and it's definitely a great time for young people, old people, anybody um, as you said, who has access to the internet to have a platform and to make a difference within their communities. Um, and you also mentioned that, of course, knowledge now, because everything, you know, technology and scientific breakthroughs are really accelerating and happening at such a fast rate that you can't really keep up. Um, flexibility is probably one of the biggest skills is being able to learn and being able to continuously connect with other people and learn about what's going on in the world. Um, so I wanted to ask as an environmental educator yourself um, and, you know, having lived in Singapore and grown up in Singapore, how do you feel that the education landscape is in Singapore in terms of environmental education? Well, if I would come back to the point about how the education system is geared for jobs in the market. So uh, the conventional wisdom here in a, in a very, uh, what's the word, show you? in Asian culture here, is, for example, uh, the admired professions, um, at least those that are high paying, uh, will be in um, fields of uh, medicine, perhaps, uh, engineering, uh, law, uh, economics, finance, for example, right? Um, yeah. And uh, what gets left behind or little um, with with less emphasis will be um, uh, perhaps the arts, uh, the social sciences, and even uh, within the sign uh, uh, within the hard sciences, you see a transformation of um, emphasis from traditional uh, taxonomy and uh, ecology uh, towards uh, biotechnology uh, and so-called life sciences. But at at the end of the day, uh, at least in one perspective, uh, I mean, I studied economics uh, at uh, GCA levels and at no point in my economic studies uh, did I encounter encounter the concept of uh, limits to growth. So conventional economics assumes (laughs) that resources are finite. Yeah. Or infinite, infinite, uh, rather. And if they are finite, they can be substitute. That means uh, uh, human skills uh, and innovation can substitute for physical uh, factors of production, you know, like perhaps water, uh, uh, land, uh, and so on, or even oxygen, for example. Uh, but we do know that actually there are limits to growth or infinite growth, and there are limits to uh, ecological sustain, uh, stable, stability on planet Earth. Right. So if, yeah. if we, uh, for example, emit too much greenhouse gases, 
then that will cause a cascade of uh, impacts on the planet uh, above and beyond global heating. So um, traditional education that tends to make us specialists in a very narrow fields of knowledge in order so that we can when we can become a skilled worker uh, in the, the economy does not allow for us to understand this complexity and interactions uh, in our planetary uh, systems. So um, what happens then? That means that we can have uh, very good doctors, we can have uh, very good uh, mechanics, we can have um, very good engineers, but when it comes to trying to solve complex uh, issues like um, poverty or even the pandemic, uh, we find that uh, that requires a whole uh, lot of different skill sets and knowledge uh, to create holistic solutions. Uh, yeah, so going back to what you were mentioning before about you know the arts and the social sciences, there are there is this need basically for people with loads of different skills and different talents. Um, for example, art is an incredible medium to communicate. So for environmentalism, this is obviously a key part of initiating a movement and communicating ideas. Um, and I have noticed, because I do study economics at school currently, um, mm -hmm. thankfully I've noticed a little bit of a shift towards environmental models and kind of um, thinking about methods to increase sustainability and um, decrease kind of the maybe the carbon footprint of production in firms. That's good. So there is kind of a shift, and yeah, it's definitely good for the younger generation to have more of an awareness. And there's people like you um, working towards this kind of education, which is really good. Um, so I wanted to ask ultimately, your goal, I suppose, is to try to change mindsets in Singapore and to educate the community on the significance of sustainable living. Um, so what have you learned about changing mindsets? Do you have any advice for people that are trying to introduce new ideas or kick off new projects? How do you kind of connect with new audiences and help them understand the things you're trying to communicate with them? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, I guess I can only start by trying to share a little bit about what I learned about the, the basic human condition. Um, so the basic human condition um, constrains us in a few ways. For example, if I'm hungry now, uh, all of my bandwidth would be uh, devoted to how do I address my hunger. Right? Uh, yeah. If I'm cold, yeah, all of my bandwidth will be addressed to how do I stay warm. What does that mean? That means that without meeting or addressing my physical and physiological needs, 
there's very little, uh, there's probably very little available bandwidth do I have to think about other people's needs, uh, which is why the saying goes, uh, you can only help others if you are strong yourself, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and you can only be stronger if you are uh, interdependent rather than uh, trying to be independent. Because um, uh, that's where shared labor and uh, shared cultures uh, thrive uh, and expand. Uh, just like in Asia, you know, rice growing cannot happen if farmers just uh, try to grow rice on their own because that requires, uh, usually requires lots of water and uh, irrigation systems that require uh, mass scale labor, for example. So, uh, coming back to uh, physical needs, individual physical needs, or what's what can I think uh, has really been described. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's in sociology, economics, the, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Uh, to me, I feel that that is one of the uh, things that needs to be addressed um, for those of us who uh, expire or rather aspire to have that expanded bandwidth to think beyond our physical needs to actually start to uh, repair or restore uh, planet Earth uh, to a more livable condition. Because uh, for those of us with limited needs, then the dilemma, for example, may be, uh, do I try to save... Uh, do I, for example, cut down one more tree uh, to cook for my family for the next three meals? Or do I avoid cooking at all and try to save that tree for the next generation? Now, quite obviously, most people would not be able to uh, defer uh, some of their short-term needs uh, and enhance environmental degradation will happen when they have limited choice. Yeah. So, uh, from this dilemma, uh, we can also understand that uh, because of social systems, uh, the vast scale of inequality and unequal distribution uh, provides us with huge opportunities for change. Right. At no point in time, I think, according to uh, statistics, uh, do we have a lack of food, but rather it's the lack of equal distribution <laughs> that allows hungers uh, and starvations to still happen on planet Earth. Yeah, that's some very interesting points. It's definitely human nature to need to meet your own needs first and of course that's why before anything we must kind of think about our mental well-being and our physical well-being and making sure we're in a position where we are able to help others um, and of course no one is superhuman so no one can overcome these natural instincts um, and that's why as you mentioned we kind of have to work together and use all of our strengths um, and because we're at a point on on earth right now where we can we really have huge opportunity to make change there's you know there's a lot of problems um but there's also a lot of 
potential solutions. And there's more than ever, I, I like to believe, um, people willing to make that difference. Um, and one of the other points you were talking about is, yeah, the aspect of whether people can support themselves, their families. And recently I was studying um, kind of sustainable agriculture. And one of the themes that came up was um, sustainable farming practices. But uh -huh. before we can even demand that farmers, you know, improve um, their crop yields through a variety of methods, we have to be able to pay them a fair wage. And so we can't demand things from anybody if they are not in a position already to support themselves and their families. Um, so now we can, this kind of is a good tangent to talk about um, Foodscape Collective. So you are a founding member of this um, organization. So would you like to share a bit about the vision behind this and how it has evolved over the years and maybe your current focus with it? Yeah, sure. I mean, the collective didn't come about uh, as a very intentional thing, at least in my opinion. Um, well, it, it, one of the um, things that actually happened was my partner and I actually signed up for an urban farming course and we met up with a fellow course mate uh, through that urban farming course with uh, this social enterprise known as uh, Edible Garden City. We were introduced by a staff to another, uh, to a mutual friend who was a geographer who was interested in uh, farming as well. And uh, together, uh, the four of us uh, actually decided that uh, we were interested to understand or better understand the landscape of food in Singapore, meaning um, who are growing our food, where is it being grown, how is it being distributed, uh, what are the health impacts of the food that's available to us or unavailable to us, and how is it being uh, uh, recycled or is there uh, possibilities of uh, regenerative systems at work so while each, uh, each of the four of us had uh, different uh, interests in the landscape of food uh, we felt that um, by coming together and exploring uh, this landscape together we may be able to unpack some of the pain points in the ecosystem and perhaps understand, uh, create uh, more dialogue and conversations and perhaps even connect people in the landscape uh, towards uh, more integrated and holistic uh, systems. It's been over six years. Uh, uh, I wish that we had moved faster uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, but also because of interpersonal challenges uh, uh, and priorities, uh, three of the original members uh, have stepped down. So I'm actually with another uh, member of ours uh, are actually uh, taking on uh, the guiding of uh, the collective. We don't really, I mean, I don't really consider myself a founding member 
of sorts. Uh, I mean, there was something highlighted by my fellow Guardian, which is what we call ourselves, uh, mainly because uh, we do not want to be exclusive. We do not want to exclude people just yeah. because someone's a founder. And uh, you may have heard of the so-called founder effect, which means that a founding member or founder may have such a uh, overly significant influence uh, over the organization that sometimes is to the detriment of uh, the future of the organization. Yeah. So while we try to build a, a fair and a circular food system for all, uh, we hope that uh, anyone and everyone uh, can come into this network at any time uh, and be included at the same time. That's really awesome. Yeah, of course, in every organization, there's there's going to be some challenges, um, as you mentioned, interpersonally. Um, and I think it's great that you view leadership kind of as a way to support the people that you're working with um, and really create that sustainable change and that change that can last um, through several communities. So essentially, you have built a community. Um, your Foodscape Collective seems uh, it's very community-based and like community project-oriented. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the process of, like, have you found it easy to inspire people um, and to get involved in your projects? And has it been easy to find people to support your work? So yeah, in these terms, what is your best advice on growing and sustaining a strong community? Well, for me, um, I've always tried to uh, walk the talk. And I believe that uh, by the best example that you can be is is to be able to uh, demonstrate uh, the values that you hold dear to. And uh, nothing speaks louder than... uh, positive actions, no matter how small they are. So there have always been many instances of people coming to me and saying, oh, Han Chong, you know, I, for example, uh, wish that I had brought my own uh, washable cutlery today, you know, when they see me doing that. Uh, So while I do not uh, claim or aspire to be an evangelist in any way, uh, I believe that um, our actions uh, and how we model our behavior to the people closest to us uh, will have the greatest impact uh, towards uh, behavioral change uh, in our community. So we actually uh, uh, focus more on uh, how we can uplift and uphold each other in the space that we have uh, rather than to go all out and try to uh, preach the word, so to speak. Yeah. So what that means is that uh, with whatever opportunities that come on our way, uh, we try to match them to the interests the knowledge and the network that people have. For example, uh, for me, I'm, I've been privileged to work with 
uh, uh, parliamentarians, um, such as Member of Parliament uh, Mr. Louis Ng, uh, who I met through the Nature Society uh, two decades ago. Uh, through him, uh, he has invited me to be part of uh, two of the private members' bills that he has um, introduced to Parliament, the first being the Wildlife Act. And the second one, uh, upcoming, is the Good Samaritan Food Donation Bill, which we hope to... Or, uh, I, uh, which is meant to help uh, remove uh, criminal and civil liability for food donors and to encourage food donations uh, in Singapore. So through that, uh, uh, it is my... I guess my small effort in trying to uh, create change or enact change uh, at uh, a societal or national level. Uh, but this can only happen when uh, we have support um, from all aspects of co uh, the community uh, as well, uh, so that with that uh, groundswell of support, these things can then uh, get uh, gain the acceptance it needs in Parliament. There are, of course, those who uh, actually are more uh, interested in community work, and we have several of such initiatives uh, within the network, uh, be it in uh, soil regeneration, uh, community uh, farming, or even composting. And uh, this allows or provides opportunities for anyone in the community to join us uh, in ground-up efforts that uh, empowers people to uh, have the choice, to have a choice to live a greener lifestyle. And that is what we endeavor to do. Uh, always. Thank you. That was really great advice, especially um, that everyone can make a difference just by, you know, acting differently and changing their habits. And as if we can all play a little part, we can, you know, influence the people just in our closer communities, in our families, in our friendships. And in that way, it might, you know, snowball as it did with you. You might make new connections and start new projects. So thank you for that. Maybe um, I should. Maybe I should just add one thing. <laughs> um, yeah. As a piece of advice. So as any green advocate uh, may encounter, and I I tend not to use, try to use any labels myself, uh, whether it's calling myself an environmentalist or advocate for that matter, but. Uh, as in all aspects of uh, living in a community, whenever you decide uh, or make choices that are different or stands out from the society or your community, uh, often it's uh, something, I mean, if it's very, a very, very noticeable difference, all right, uh, people may either uh, ignore you or ridicule you. Right, so uh, hence the image of a so-called uh, you don't have to know that there is a vegan you know, in your community because that person will tell you 
straight off. Yeah. <laughs> so vegans have a bad rap. Uh, why? Because the presumed assumption is that uh, at each social occasion, especially when it's overeating, something very, very basic, you know, uh, a tension, uh, a point of tension or uh, uh, has may arise. But so, so how do we get uh, acceptance? Uh, I would suppose in, in my own way, uh, I've actually had managed to just make uh, new friends uh, with the neighbors around me. Uh, ironically, I've lived in my neighborhood for 20 years and I don't really know that many of them. Uh, but through spontaneous conversations, I've managed to... Uh, uh, offer free food to them. So how did I get free food in the first place? And why are they interested? So <laughs> so my point is, if you're going to ask someone to stop eating meat, uh, they will either outright reject you outright or they will probably think for a long time before they come around to the idea. But if you say, you know, this is an opportunity for you to save money and have some free food, I don't think that person will need to think that long before he starts to ask, how did you get this food? <laughs> and where can I get access to that? <laughs> right? So my, my, yeah. my point being that uh, how you can actually make more friends is to add value to their, to their lives, as I mentioned uh, much earlier in this interview. When you can find opportunities for that, people will come to you. Uh, uh, so by me... Uh, starting as a so-called dumpster diver to understanding where we can rescue perfectly edible food, uh, unsold surplus food that's been thrown away indiscriminately, uh, to offering such uh, surplus to others, uh, and uh, allowing others to see an alternative uh, option or even lifestyle that they have not been open to, uh, can can change minds more easily. I mean, case in point, when my two nieces comes back to, uh, I mean, comes to visit me and my mom, uh, my aunt, uh, my sister used to tell her daughters, you know, don't ever touch uncle's food. Why? Because they're all expired. You know, not safe <laughs> to eat. <laughs> and I never said anything. But some years back, uh, after my sister uh, found out and uh, joined uh, a vegetable rescue where she lived in Little India, right? Uh, that I think was a transformational experience for her, which uh, allowed her to actually uh, try out and even adopt rescued food for her whole family, and even volunteer to lead and distribute food to various community fridges in Singapore. So did that change come from me as a sibling? No, that actually came from, you know, a social movement out there. So um, what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, uh, while it seems ironical when I said that we are probably the best influence to the people around us, but sometimes uh, that could also be a barrier because people may actually be receptive to uh, voices outside uh, yeah. the immediate circle. <laughs> you know, just like foreign consultants are, are you know, more valued than local consultants, for example. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> when the advice may still be the same, actually. <laughs> and so on that note, what, what do you see as the future of food? Because, you know, there's all these different topics coming up. Um, I, one thing that I've been kind of looking into is algae and producing kind of substitute um, seafood from algae or even industry such as like fake meat or yeah. like impossible burgers. Yeah. What are your views on that and the future of food? Well, this is a very huge and complicated issue, which <laughs> will probably deserve a whole new podcast on its own. Um, and it's so complex. So I, I probably will try to share just a few things that yeah. may be pertinent to this issue. So the first thing which I mean iterate is that it seems that we actually have mountains of food stored uh, on this planet Earth. Uh, the fact that they're being stored and not being redistributed equitably means that it's not actually a, a production issue. Yeah, uh, it's more of a distribution issue. Yeah, growing more food may actually be more detrimental to the uh, the planet because it uses just more land and re resources. Right. But secondly, a uh, food is also very cultural, so uh, it's not one size fits all. Right. None of us have, uh, yes will eat the same diet because of different uh, dietary, nutritional, or even uh, religious requirements. So that makes it complex. Uh, number three. Um, uh, um, much of the food is actually uh, wasted. Uh, there's a term for it, I can't remember. There's a difference between uh, not just wasted, but also lost. So food loss happens usually at the farm. Food waste usually happens uh, near the tail end of um, the chain, which we as a consumer society is, uh, has to address. So we're probably, uh, uh, one statistic in the US claims that half of, more than half of all food in the fridge gets thrown out actually. Oh, wow. So, and yeah. And uh, a report by this group called Project Drawdown, which uh, calculates the uh, environmental impact of various uh, solutions, claim that reducing food waste and loss ranks, I think, number one or number two in terms of the impact and the amount of carbon that will be saved. So certainly, uh, this is, and uh, if listed as a country, you know, food loss and food waste or the production of food will rank number three in terms of carbon emissions, actually. So this is an issue which I think is hardly addressed, even in the uh, UNFCC, um, the Climate Change Conference. Yeah, because a, a lot of it is just devoted to fossil fuels, right? Yeah. <laughs> None of it is devoted to food, even though the IPCC report from very early on has um, recommended a change in the people's diet. Not in terms of uh, not eating meat at all, but just uh, reducing our meat consumption will have a very, very significant impact already. Uh, and this is something that is not in uh, the public messaging, especially from governments. I have very few governments uh, will tell its people to reduce uh, meat consumption, uh, despite the fact that eating one less beef burger, for example, will save you all that time that you decided 
to shorten in your showers. That will probably be equivalent to, I'm not sure, I think maybe 100 showers of 10 minutes each or more. Yeah. So while public water conservation messages focus on things like reducing your shower time, uh, unfortunately, though, that, that is literally only a drop in the ocean uh, compared to yeah. uh, the... Uh, what, what do we call that? The, the, the water footprint of some of the food choices that, uh, that we make. Yeah, I think I've definitely heard that um, livestock production consumes huge amounts of water. So that's a great way to start um, improving you know, the, our emission or carbon footprints and water consumption. Um, so here's kind of a more complex question for you. What does sustainability really mean to you? Because as you mentioned, there's a lot of focus on fossil fuels. There's um, as like food. There's so many different facets to sustainability. And it's obviously not only environmental, but maybe social and economic. So how, what does sustainability mean to you? Yeah. Uh, I guess it means different things to me. But uh, first of all, in terms of my value system, it, 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 has always meant about it has always meant um, trying to live simply so that others may simply live uh, and this approach comes from the fact that our human needs are actually uh, relatively few uh, compared to our unlimited desires and wants so if our yeah. economy is built around uh, incentivizing <laughs> or urging people to be able to meet all their unlimited wants, uh, then we're going to have a huge issue because uh, uh, it's, it seems that we have not reached a point where we, we can actually meet that at all. Which, so that if uh, all the people in the Republic of China and India wants to live like us in Singapore, then we'll probably need four other planets like Earth. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that is the fundamental issue I think we have uh, to understand uh, for those of us who live uh, in a sea of uh, consumerism, uh, excess and waste. Uh, that, that, therefore, by learning from the birds and learning from ecology, uh, uh, I guess I've been relatively proud to say that uh, I've become almost like a voucher, an urban voucher uh, uh, in my lifestyle uh, in order to minimize my impact and also uh, to change the image of a voucher into a creature that actually provides what we call, what is now known as an ecosystem service, right? Helping to reduce waste. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, in the, uh, uh, for, vouch for vouchers, uh, uh, minimizing disease even. Uh, so sustainability, uh, you also mentioned, I think about, uh, I think this day and age, they, they talk about the gray swans and the black swans, uh, the unknown unknowns. And while... Uh, and despite the fact that perhaps 80% of the population is fo focused primarily on their basic needs and immediate needs, having very little time to think about 
future generations of the planet, unfortunately, because of, of their situation. Uh, those of us who can have the privilege to do so, uh, to think about larger issues at hand, be it the pandemic or the climate crisis, uh, may also have to address issues that may even be further ahead uh, with unknown timelines. So uh, uh, these would include things that scientists uh, classify as a planetary extinction level events. So what are these? These could be things like an asteroid strike, for example. So it's not a matter of whether it'll come, it's a matter of when will it come. <laughs> yeah. And so if we don't address that, we may not have the timeline that humans have been uh, given to address some of our human uh, induced issues like ozone depletion uh, when I first started learning about the environmentalism for example or even the climate crisis right so uh, and again these are challenges uh, be it asteroid strike uh, the next pandemic again it won't be a matter of when or, or whether it will happen or, or it's just a matter of when if we do not so-called uh, to borrow very cliche terms, build back better. Yeah. Uh, uh, these things will, uh, will certainly require uh, some of our mind space as well. Uh, if ever we have the... Well, uh, while we address immediate issues. Yeah. So, so that is, I think, the challenge that we have. How do we fight the fires in front of our door? while not forgetting that there might be fires or smoke <laughs> right out there that may uh, indicate that there's a bigger fire coming. Yeah. Yeah, and I think with these, with these issues and um, kind of this unknown of what's going to happen, a lot of people re um, kind of feel what we call, I think, climate anxiety. Mm. So they're kind of worried about what's what's going to happen and it's this sense of kind of i guess insecurity of um the world and what's going to happen to all of us so for people who are listening and who want to make an impact on the environment what is one thing they can start doing tomorrow that can make a difference you've kind of already touched on this in terms of taking shorter showers or eating less meat are there any other things that they can implement easily into their lifestyle that will help towards living more sustainably? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I've talked to someone who I guess you could categorize as a, a climate uh, denialist, you know, a fossil fuel, a self-declared fossil fuel lover. So in my oh. conversation with uh, this person, uh, right, this person claims that uh, we, the so-called environmentalists, are, are, are the uh, people who... Um, What's the question? Who, who are trying to get us to uh, avoid uh, an abundant or happy lifestyle, right? Because we always tell people not to take flights, cut down your holidays, uh, don't have babies, um, uh, switch off your aircon, yeah, eat less meat. 
So obviously, if a lot of this messaging is very, very negative, uh, there'll be very few people who like who want to join this kind of lifestyle, where it's more of an avoidant lifestyle. Yeah. Right? Avoid everything. Uh, be like a monk or nun or ascetic. But I think that's not the message that will be very, very popular. Uh, so uh, the way to go around this, I, I realize is... Uh, to have an abundant lifestyle is is uh, to have this concept that actually small is beautiful. Uh, being a minimalist like me is beautiful because why? Because I have no debt. Uh, I have no worries. In fact, my challenge is trying to give away more food than I can ever consume. <laughs> so I have a, I, I ironically have a have a, the opposite problem. While people are talking about yeah <laughs> uh, scarcity, I'm talking about. <laughs> Uh, overabundance, abundance, exactly. Yes. So I think uh, the posi- when you want to actually inspire people uh, towards action, uh, they have to be able to see that there's abundance. There's actually either uh, real abundance, as what I've shown, which what I've demonstrated, or even the perception of abundance. Without this perceived abundance, which can happen through greater collaboration, yeah, and innovation. Uh, then life is not so depressing after all. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a, it's really great to have this positive outlook and I'm sure everybody who's listening is yeah, really yeah, encouraged. So by if what you, you, you've ever, yeah. you know, worried about not having enough in your wallet or not wondering whether you, you know, not have not enough food, uh, just come by my place, my pantry. <laughs> <laughs> it's always... You know, welcome to another uh, person who can so-called offer their consumption service because this is an ecological service. Without you cons- helping to consume all this excess food, you know, it would be a sin to waste them, uh, literally. Yeah, so unfortunately, Hang Chong, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, we're nearing the end of our of our episode. We're running out of time. Unfortunately, I would continue this conversation. We've hit so many interesting points. But I wanted to ask one question, which I'm going to ask all my guests who come through this podcast. Um, in one to two sentences, what would your best advice for all the young people out there and the old, everyone's welcome here, um, for implementing change in their communities? Well, I would say for those of you who are climate anxious uh, do know that you're not alone do uh, look reach out and find your tribe of happy people with uh, happy problems like me who wants to give away stuff <laughs> and you know and you'll never have to worry another day uh, next uh, for those of you who think you have uh, uh, debts and liabilities uh, perhaps it's time to rethink what we actually truly need or want and uh, live a more simple lifestyle yeah. and with that uh, Great. you, I think we'll have many more years of uh, abundance and, and true prosperity for all yeah Okay, thank you so much, Han Chong, for coming in today. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, that's the message for 
Chinese New Year always, which is happening in the next few years, right? Abundance and prosperity. <laughs> <laughs> that never fails yeah, to, definitely. To, to attract people. So wishing abundance and prosperity to everyone yeah, and to you. you. Yeah, thank you thank for you, coming Mike. on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eat Your Greens podcast. See you next time.